Good evening comrades and welcome to ASMRs. This week we are starting with Vladimir Lenin, as promised, or at least alluded to, and his book What is to be done? Um, so basically this is where uh, we are entering a zone where I have no experience at all with the material I'm reading. Um, and I'm going to be forming my opinions along with you as we read this together. Um, and this week, this week in particular, we are going to not really touch upon any of Lenin's writings directly, as the edition I have has quite a lengthy introduction. And I, would, I, I think it's beneficial to uh, read parts of it to get some context on Lenin's life itself, as well as to get a quick rundown of the book, of the book contents. So I will read a select subchapters of introduction. If I have the time, I will publish the extra chapters that we do not have time to cover this week uh, onto our website at asmworks.xyz. And of course, you can contact me with any questions on contact at asmworks.xyz. What else to note before we begin? Oh yes, Lenin uh, immediately uh, being one of the first uh, well followers of Marxism already posed quite a challenge on Marxist and uh, communist ideology by being a strong proponent of an indirect, indirect democracy and of a strong um, leadership that centralizes uh, the leadership of the party, um, which is at odds with, of course, uh, communism's uh, ideal of no state and no government, uh, but we will see how this is being reconciled in the actual texts. It's possible Lenin only meant it uh, in, in in the party structure uh, as they approach uh, socialism and communism, but of course, uh, historically, we know that uh, Lenin did not manage to get rid of the state, um, and I am not sure if he wanted to or intended to. But yeah, so as I said, we will both find this out uh, as we uh, read this book. So with no further ado, I'm going to get into the introduction chapters. Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, what is to be done? What is to be done? Vladimir Ilyich Lenin was born in Simbirsk in 1870 and grew up under the repressive regime of the 1880s. He began his studies in law at Kazan University in 1887, but was expelled for his involvement in a student demonstration. He joined an illegal political group in Kazan. Eventually, Lenin was allowed to take a degree as an external student of St. Petersburg University and he graduated with distinction in 1891. He joined a group of Marxist intellectuals in St. Petersburg. Political activity was his main objective in life. He wrote on Russian economic development and became a party organizer. 
He was arrested in 1895, was imprisoned for a time and then exiled to Siberia for three years. There he completed his development of capitalism. In 1898, he married Nadishka Krupskaya, a fellow Marxist. They lived together in immigration from 1900. What is to be done was published in Germany in 1902. Lenin also edited the Marxist newspaper Iskra, Spark, and was a prominent leader of the militant wing of the Russian Social Democratic Labour Party. He headed the Bolshevik faction in immigration when the party split in 1903. He returned to Russia in 1905. During the revolutionary upheaval, but was forced to go abroad again in 1907. He continued to organize, write, and argue. Conflicts among Marxists were intense. The First World War delivered the final crippling blow to the Russian absolute monarchy. The emperor abdicated in the February Revolution of 1917. Lenin returned to Russia in April and led the Bolsheviks to power in the October Revolution. During this eventful summer, he wrote his masterpiece, The State and Revolution, which was unfortunately never completed. Lenin became a premier of the new Soviet government. Social and economic reforms were initiated, and a separate peace was signed with Germany. The Bolsheviks won the ensuing civil war in Russia. After the rigors of the fighting, Lenin conceded a new economic policy in 1921. His health began to deteriorate, and he died in 1924. Vladimir Ilyich Lenin. What is to be done? Introduction by Robert Service. The writing of what is to be done. Lenin began the writing on what is to be done in mid-1901 and completed it in February 1902. His book is a 20th century political classic. It has appealed in dozens of languages, and its importance is affirmed by historians and political scientists. Copies have been read in their millions. Many years passed, and many political turnabouts occurred. However, before such remarkable fame rested upon what is to be done, the changing reactions to the work make an interesting story in itself. They reveal a good deal, too about Lenin's career and the history and politics of communism in the USSR and around the globe. But let us begin at the beginning. In 1902, Lenin had no inkling that his booklet, as he called it, would eventually attract worldwide attention. He wrote in Russian for Russians, nor did he intend it for mass circulation. In this, he had little choice. Legal publication was out of the question. What is to be done? Discuss the task of instigating a revolution, and the St. Petersburg Censor's Office would never have sanctioned the publication of so subversive a tract. The empire was ruled by an absolute monarchy. No other contemporary great power, not even Germany, where the Reichstag authority was overbidden by Wilhelm II when he saw fit, languished under quite so oppressive a system of governance. All political parties were banned. There was no parliamentary assembly. 
the laws of the land were applied both severely and arbitrarily. The Ministry of the Interior could mete out punishment to any subject of the empire without the reference to the courts. It was against this political structure that Lenin directed his energies in the chapters of his book. What is to be done did not provide a serene analysis of the regime of the Emperor Nikolai II. It was a missile designed to assist in destroying it. The book, when printed, would be passed around among revolutionary activists. It was not a work for the apolitical. It was composed to be read by persons who knew that, if caught in possession of it, they risked being sentenced to prison or exile. A further factor limited the number of potential readers. Despite the police's efforts, illegal political parties and groups proliferated in Russia by 1902. There were liberals, socialists, and anarchists. Lenin aimed his book solely at socialists. He did not have liberals and anarchists in his sights. Furthermore, he did not expect his booklet, as he called it, to appeal to all socialists. Lenin was a Marxist. He was a rising leader of the Russian Social Democratic Labour Party. What is to be done was written with exclusively his fellow party members in mind. Only around 10,000 of these existed before the Russian revolutionary upheaval of 1905-6. The party's resistance in the face of persecution was nonetheless a serious irritant to the absolute monarchy. Every leading social democrat was known by name to the police. Few evaded capture permanently. The Ministry of the Interior's practice was to exile them by administrative order to Siberia, but low density of surveillance made escape not too discouragingly difficult. In Lenin's case, in 1897 the term of exile had been set at three years, and he chose to set them out without an attempt at flight. Conditions in Shushenko village in Enisysk province were light enough to allow him to continue his economic researches. He was released in January 1900, yet he remained under police scrutiny after Siberia. He opted with reluctance um, to go into emigration. This was a normal decision for Russian revolutionary activists. It signified no decline in political commitment. Revolutionaries moved to Western and Central Europe to fight the Russian autocracy more freely. Switzerland, with its tradition of neutrality in international relations, was most highly favored. Printing presses were legally acquirable there. Newspapers could be published. Books, pamphlets, and proclamations could be produced. And routes were planned for the party's courier to smuggle such material back into the Russian Empire. The customs points in Scandinavia were the least troublesome, but it was not unknown for relays to be undertaken by the Egyptian port of Alexandria and across the Turkish land frontier into southern Russia. What is to be done was written in emigration. Lenin at the time was living in a flat in the Schwabing district of Munich. Leaving Russia in July 1900, he had initially made for Switzerland. His ambition was to establish a newspaper for the Russian Social Democratic Labour Party. He contacted senior emigre social democrats, and support came from Georgi Plekhanov, Pavel Axelrod, and Vera Zasulich. Lenin had the highest regard for them as the founding figures of Marxism in Russia, but he doubted their practical abilities. 
Together with young men like Yuli Martov and Alexandra Potresor, he had already started to collect funds for the newspaper. He had a name for it too, Iskra or Spark. Tehano was a prolific writer and the party's most renowned leader, but Lenin discovered that the older man expected to have a decisive influence over the editing of the new publication. Weeks of discussion passed. What should have been an amicable working arrangement between comrades turned into a battle of wills. Lenin had two weaknesses, his inexperience as a negotiator and his admiration for Plekhanov. These he overcame. An editorial board of six was set up. Plekhanov, Aksalrod, Sulich, Marto, Petrhos, Patresov, and Lenin were its members. Each could vet manuscripts. Plekhanov's capacity to dominate the rest was restricted by the custom of putting contentious matters to a vote. But Lenin wanted to ensure his own freedom. Against Plehanov, the board took Lenin's advice to make Munich and southern Germany their base of operation. A strategic argument would be made in Bavaria's favor. It was nearer to Russia, it was also an area where the German Social Democrats had soundly established party organizations and typesetting facilities. Another motivation was Lenin's desire to stay out of Plehanov's orbit. Plekhanov was urged to write for Iskra, but it was not to be his personal possession. Nor indeed was it only Lenin's. Rambushes as he was at editorial conferences, he did not automatically dominate his associates. He had to win by strength of logic. The example he set in punctiliousness and hard labor helped him too. He wrote fast, was efficient at revising the offerings of other contributors, and developed a keen eye for proofreading and he quickly learned the commercial skills of publishing. The first issue of Iskra was available by December 1900. Bundles were dispatched to Russia. The struggle commenced to win the backing of the Marxist activists at home, conducting agitation in the factory districts and students' quarters. Essentially, it was a struggle for the leadership of the Russian Social Democratic Labour Party. That Iskra should begin by fighting battles inside his own party, depressed several social democrats. The emigres, or all their intellectual eminence, never stopped quarreling. The joke went around that the thinness of alpine air affected their common sense. Clustered together in small communities, far removed from their native land and distant from any opportunity of welding government power, they engaged in their disputes with a willfulness that repelled socialists in the rest of Europe. Not only Russian Marx had this reputation, the entire political emigration from Russia, from before the time when Marxism had followed there, had been notorious for its disputationness over several decades. Yet the emigrants were usually careful to contain these annoying tendencies within the bounds of their party. No Russian Marxist aimed to offend the Swiss authorities. None could forget that deportation could lead to repatriation to Russia and imprisonment. Life in Zurich or Bern or Geneva had its compensations. For let there be no doubt that the emigres regarded their residence abroad as a regrettable temporary necessity. There were excellent libraries, there were also plenty of resident Russians. Far from the many tourists, a large number of Russian students thronged Central Europe's university towns. Switzerland had 2,343 registered for degree in courses in 1907. Restaurants and cafes were set up to cater specially for Russians. It was possible for Russian Marxists, if they wished, to insulate themselves from their country of exile, 
Emotional isolation was seldom the main problem. When deciding in Russia to become revolutionaries, they simultaneously chose a path away from the hearth of the family and childhood friends. Marriages and liaisons with other party members were the norm. Lenin, for example, a wet fellow activist in the Jeshka Konstantinovna Krupskaya in 1898. The chief difficulty for emigres was crudely material. They were plagued by shortages of money. Only very few, like Georgi Plekhanov, had a nobleman's private income. There were hundreds of unfortunates who alighted penniless at some Swiss railway station. Some then got jobs as part-time teachers, typists, or restaurant washers up. Others lived still more precariously, touting for assignments as barrow pushers. Was the nadir to which some tumbled. Lenin was luckier than most. His skills as a writer and his wife's training as a teacher saved them from the worst financial pressures, and emergency relief was available from his mother, who received a monthly pension in respect of her deceased husband. The lifestyle was not luxurious, but it was not uncomfortable. Rented rooms in Switzerland and Bavaria were cheap. Later, the couple also had Nadezhka Krupskaya's mother with them to handle the housekeeping. Lenin never achieved a high opinion of his wife's culinary aptitude. In the meantime, they were well accustomed to traveling from place to place without undue encumbrance. Their clothes were neat without being pretentious or even dapper. She dressed like the school teacher that she had once been. He, with his three-piece suit and a Hamburg, like the provincial lawyer that he had been for a brief while. Their sole extravagance was an annual summer holiday in the Alps. Mountain walking with them. Baedeker in hand and the rucksack on their backs was their favorite relaxation. Lenin's early life. The other great expenditure was on correspondence and books. There could be no stinting here. A Russian revolutionary leader based in Central Europe had to be willing to write countless letters not only to party groups in Russia, but also to colleagues elsewhere in the immigration. Marxism in the Russian Empire, moreover, was born with a firm belief in the importance of ideas. Research and prediction were in its blood. They were present in the body of tradition of the country's rebels in general. Lenin's family was affected by the intellectual effervescence of the time. He himself was born on 10th of April, 1870, in the Volga city of Simbirsk. He was christened as Vladimir Ilyich Yulianov. Lenin was a pseudonym he assumed three decades later in Switzerland. And the family called him Volodya. His parents had six children in all, and Volodya was their third. The Ulyanovs were a contented family. Volodya's father, Ilya Ulyanov, was a province-level school inspector. Ilya had risen from lowly social origins. His father had been an Astrakhan tailor and his mother a Kalmyk. Ilya's wife, Maria, had more exalted forebears. Her father had been a doctor. She had descended from wealthy merchants of German extraction, and she inherited a landed estate. Ilya and Maria were the incarnation of industriousness, inspecting schools in Serbia province in an era when the schools had only recently been built, kept Ilya away from home for lengthy periods. Maria managed the affairs of the household. The day-to-day upbringing of the children was her main task. She had a sermon to do the physical chores. Husband and wife agreed on the supreme priority of reinforcing schoolwork with reading, writing, and discussion at home. Intense attitudes and intensive toil were all you know traits.
the formal educational attainments were formidable, and Volodya was not alone in achieving a brilliant career in Simbursk Secondary School. The older son, Alexander, had been equally outstanding. His tutorate in biology at St. Petersburg anticipated an impressive academic future for him. His father had brought up the children in contact with the classics of Russian literature. This had introduced him to a world of thought outside the natural sciences and no great contemporary fiction lacked criticism of the regime and social order. Alexander rejected his parents' faith in the possibility of change for a peaceful evolution. In Russia, he joined a clandestine terrorist group whose ultimate objective was the total reconstruction of society. They were agrarian, socialists, or narodniki, wanting the egalitarianism discernible in the Russian peasant land commune to be applied as a universal principle in society. Their short-term tactics included assassinations. On 1st of March, 1887, Alexander Yulinov's group planned to kill the Emperor Alexander III. The police discovered the conspiracy in time. Arrests followed. At the trial, the leaders were condemned to death. The hanging of Alexander Yulinov threw the mind of young Vladimir into turmoil. Already in 1886, he had suffered the loss of his father, who died of cerebral arteriosclerosis. But Alexander's death was not only a personal tragedy, it also provoked his brother to think seriously about politics. Vladimir, like most of his brothers and sisters, might have become a revolutionary even without the president of Alexander. Access to Alexander's library, however, strengthened Vladimir's inclination. Troubled through he was by the hanging, Vladimir set his final school exams the same summer. He performed superlatively well and in autumn 1887 entered Kazan University as a law student. He quickly joined an agrarian socialist group like that of his deceased brother. He also became engaged in Kazan student protests and this got him rusticated. The English term is peculiarly appropriate. For Vladimir was compelled by the Ministry of the Interior to reside with his mother on their new landed estate in Kazan province. He did not give up his studies. After persistent applications, he was re-accepted as an undergraduate, this time as an external student with St. Petersburg University. He even tried briefly to run his mother's estate, yet politics had become his preoccupation. By 1818, by 1888, he was reading Marx. He sat his law finals in St. Petersburg in 1891 and obtained a good first, but his sights were fixed undeviatingly on a career as a revolutionary. He did not immediately adopt the life of an illegal. He practiced as an assistant barrister in Samara in 1892, but in his spare time participated in a local clandestine revolutionary group. His associates were AP Sklerenko and I.K. Lelayans. The group apparently started out with agrarian socialist sympathies, but it was moved, but it was moving towards Marxism. The activity centered on intellectual discussion. No propaganda was attempted. No workers were recruited. Lenin continued to read Marx and Engels while picking up the works of their followers in Germany and Russia. Samara was like Kazan and other towns along the river Volga and nurturing an auto Atochonov's political culture, and Vladimir Yulinov and his fellows were better acquainted with the sheer variety of Russian imperial society than they would have been if they had hailed from apartment blocks of St. Petersburg Nevsky Prospect. 
As Marxists, on the other hand, they could not forever be satisfied by scholarship alone. The labor movement in the early 1890s was in its infancy in most Russian cities, and Samara was no exception. Lenin took to Marxism before meeting his first factory worker. The stimulus to leave Samara for St. Petersburg was irresistible. The capital's metal processing industries were expanding. An urban working class was in the making. St. Petersburg had also been a crucible of such political ferment. As had troubled the government in the mid-18th century, murmurings of discontent were frequent at the political soirees of capital. The novels and poems most bitterly attacked the regime, even while using language which would avoid the censor's interference, appeared there. Furthermore, it was in Petersburg that serious textile strikes and the political demonstration had occurred in the 1970s. Ulyanov found a flat there in 1893, obtaining a job in the barista's office as a cover. He contacted Marx's groups. He kept up his economic research. He also wrote pamphlets and proclamations when his group tried to involve itself in the sporadic strikes in the city. Ulyanov himself collaborated with the Pieter Struf to seek avenues of legal publications for his articles on Russian agricultural development, but censorship difficulties proved insuperable. Other opportunities, too, were sought out. Ulino went as his group's representative to Switzerland to negotiate with Gorgi Plekhanov. The plan was to arrange a joint project to run a Marxist newspaper from abroad. The police kept a watch on him from St. Petersburg to Geneva and back to St. Petersburg. Ulyanov already revealed Plekhanov as the father of Russian Marxism, and Plekhanov gave a warm welcome to his disciple. It would be mistaken to overstate the rise of Vladimir Ulyanov in the political world. In the mid-1890s, there were just a few hundred Marxists in Russia. Their objective of leading the workers' movement of protest against employers and against government was only intermittently fulfilled. They were certainly in no shape to organize a revolution. Yet their popularity among those who abhorred the regime was on the increase, and the authorities in the capital were sufficiently perturbed in December 1895 to order a mass arrest of all known Marxists. Vladimir Ulyana was among those captured. Detained in a St. Petersburg prison, he fell back on the support of his family. His mother gave every assistance. She had looked after all her children bravely and resolutely after her husband's premature death in 1886 and the execution of her son Alexander in 1887. Vladimir's late adolescence had been grim. In 1891, it had fallen to him to arrange the funeral of his favorite sister Olga, who died of typhoid. These events seemed to have hardened him. His acquaintances remarked on his taciturn impassiveness in the face of misfortune. But he was not quite as lonely in prison as he might have been. His mother wrote regular letters, and his sisters supplied him with the books he desired. His living conditions were bearable, and they eased in 1897 when he was sentenced to three years' exile in the village of Shushenko in Ains province in eastern Siberia. On arrival, he took up duck shooting. His mother supplemented his convict's allowance, and it was in Siberia that he completed his magnum opus on economic trends, the development of capitalism in Russia. In Shushenko, he was the leading figure among St. Petersburg Marxist revolutionaries. He rallied their morale. His bravado in daily intercourse was infectious, and he wrote cheering messages to comrades exiled to less hospitable places further north. In Siberia, he married Nijenka Krypskaya. 
Theirs was a political as well as an emotional partnership. Both were profoundly committed to Marxists. In Vladimir's case, the intensity of belief was extreme. He would never knowingly permit any statement by Marx to be challenged. He was dedicated to the career of the full-time revolutionary. There was a dogmatic side to him. He was as willing to criticize fellow underground activists in the most abusive terms of deviations from Marxist orthodoxy, as he was ready to castigate the Russian absolute monarchy itself. For himself, he claimed total fidelity to Marxism and total consistency. Intolerance came naturally to him. Scholarship did not act as an emollient upon his manners. It was a weapon in his armory. The exact proportions among the factors that made Vladimir Ulyanov into such a person cannot be quantified. Some aspects of his character were perhaps inherited, and his strict purposive upbringing and his later experiences inside the Ulyanov family must also have made their contribution. Russian political culture too probably had an impact. Admittedly, in the 18th century there was little sign of the disputationist that was later to become normal. Intemperate language got hold only gradually, yet its grip tightened as opposition to the regime widened, and there was much to be intemperate about. The outlawing of parties and trade unions and the withholding of parliament turned the throne of Romanovs into the bastion of political reaction on the continent. Small wonder that, as the number of underground groups of activists rose, the impatience with the contrast between Russia and other major powers assumed a ferocity of verbal expression. The contents of this book. What is to be, what is to be done was written in a disputatious milieu, and its author had no compunction about stirring up further dispute. Those are some fancy words. He had sometimes signed himself and Lenin in 1901. This was the latest in the series of pseudonyms that stretched to... Uh, 160 before he died. What is to be done had its intended eclat among Russian Marxists, and the luminescence of the resultant controversy fixed Lenin as Vladimir Ulyanov's main nom de gue from 1902. Jesus Christ, these words. The book has five sections, each discussing the desirable principles of the party's organization and the contemporary conditions of illegality. This in itself marked out the author as unusual. No Marxist in Russia or elsewhere had composed a treatise on political parties. Marx died before the advent of great mass organizations. His remarks on the initial working of the European labor movement were only sketchy. Engels survived to witness the numerical expansions of the German Social Democratic Party, but wrote on broader philosophical, scientific, and historical matters in his old age. Kautsky, furthermore, found little problematic about the party's organization and, for most of his career, largely avoided the issue. It was to be some years after the republication of what is to be done that he would find himself engaged in controversy about internal party affairs with Rosa Luxemburg and Anton Panik. Ulyanov Lenin was therefore breaking new ground, as he saw it. He did this from within the European Marxist tradition. He expressly acknowledged the appropriateness of the German party's internal arrangements to contemporary politics in Germany. 
But his premise was that, since Russia was not Germany, the Russian Social Democratic Labour Party could not slavishly imitate the German socialists. Above all, the formation of an open mass party in the Russian Empire could not be contemplated until parliamentary democracy had replaced the Romanov absolute monarchy. Ulyanov Lenin argued that sterner and less expansive structures were crucial to combat Russia's ancient regime. Such an approach, he declared in the book's first section, would have earned Engels' sanction. Ulyanov Lenin's adversaries were already suggesting that Iskra was out to close down debate in the party. What is to be done delivered a repost. The same section, entitled Dogmatism and Freedom of Criticism, asserts that those wishing broader scope for the expression of dissentient opinions were in reality hoping to undermine the tenets of Marxism in the party. Ulyanov Lenin highlighted the damage, as he perceived, done by Bernstein among German socialists. He adduced Engels as an authority who supported doctrinal polemic as a means of obtaining political clarity and consistency, and without quite saying it in so many words, he announced his pride in being considered dogmatic. The second section was headed The Spontaneity of the Masses and Consciousness of Social Democracy, and its content was equally provocative. The central statement was that workers could never be by themselves gravity towards socialism. They stood in the need of indoctrination and guidance from middle-class intellectuals who had become alienated from their native class and, though their education and greater leisure, were in a position to develop socialist theory. Two such members of Europe's intelligentsia, Marx and Engels, had, according to Olyanov Lenin, made a single crucial contribution to this process. It was they who had elaborated scientific socialism, and the guidance available from their theoretical writings, he asserted, was vital for the practical success of socialism in the future. Leonel Lenin was not claiming to be saying anything novel. On the contrary, he supported his contentions with reference to similar statements made by Karl Kautsky. Nor was he stating that he, the working class would not spontaneously abhor capitalism. The section described how Strikes had broken out in Russia in the 1860s, before Russian Marxists existed and without the invention of the social intelligentsia in general. Consequently, Marxism's task was to canalize this independent reservoir of embitterment into the river of scientific socialism. Such notions had to be introduced from without. All this might appear far removed from the struggle for political and social change in Russian Empire. Leonov Lenin anticipated the objection in his lengthy third section on trade union politics and social democratic politics. He also anticipated the likeliest objector, the rival Russian Marxist newspaper Workers' Cause. This has been established in Geneva in, in 1899, and the sharp-witted A.S. Martianov was among its contributors. Martianov did not repudiate the white demand that Marxists should lead the fight for reforms but he criticized Iskra's preoccupation with ideological rectitude. Strike leadership, he asserted, was an equally necessary function of the party. Alyanov Lenin replied that Iskra recognized the need for economic battles, that his had been the opinion of St. Petersburg Marxist organization in the mid-1890s, and that such activities had helped both to politicize the working class, 
but he stressed that it was also often appropriate to conduct purely political campaigns without an economic connection. The practice of flogging peasants was one such potential issue for party propaganda. Workers' cause, according to Ulyanov Lenin, had drifted into economism by omitting this consideration. He maintained that despite all this talk of political guidance, Martianov's wish to immerse the party in strike leadership manifested the habit of bowing the knee to the spontaneity of the masses. Ulyanov Lenin made a parting thrust at workers' cause. A group of emigre Marxists, led by El Nidijhadin, and organized around the newspaper Freedom, had emerged in Switzerland in 1901. It advocated terrorism. Its adherents believed, as had Narodniki, that assassinations of state officials would somehow shake the imperial regime. In Alina Lenin's opinion, Nadeshkin overlooked the necessity for propagatory political propaganda and, by implication, exaggerated the efficacy of mass spontaneity. Thus the economists and the terrorists belonged to the same family. By extension, Leonov Lenin hoped to demonstrate that workers' cause was an indirect legacy of populism. The third section of the book offered an exposition of the belief that the Russian Social Democrats should head the movement for democratic reform. Their activity could not be limited to the working class. They had to exercise all social groups into antagonism towards the government. The next stage in the country's revolutionary schedule would be the overthrow of the Romanovs, but this would bring about the conditions for the maturing of capitalism in Russia. It would not initiate socialism. Leonov Lenin then proceeded in his fourth section to sketch his desired type of party. He argued that revolution would not fail through want of working-class discontent. The crucial lack was of socialist leadership. Workers' cause, he claimed, underestimated the pivotal force that could be exerted by a well-ordered revolutionary organization. He particularly criticized the continued profusion in the party of mere study circles, acting independently of each other. They repeated each other's mistakes. Leonov Lenin offered an analogy with economic life. In Russia, about a fifth of industrial output came not from the labor force of modern enterprises, but from the workshops of traditional artists and workers in their own homes and using simple equipment. These home-based workers were called kustar. An industrialization advanced. Their position in the Russian economy was being eroded. They were doomed to obsolescence by their smallness of scale and their technical backwardness. Similarly, political extinction threatened every little Marxist group which was not slotted into the framework of an empire-wide party. The study circles were too primitive. The Ministry of the Interior, a centralized and disciplined institution, could only be matched by Russian Social Democratic Labour Party, which accepted the necessity of centralism and discipline. Only a large-scale revolutionary organization would suffice. It was at this point that Yulina Lenin made his admiring remarks about populists. He argued that a fine organizational example had been set by the Land of the Freedom Party. Founded in 1876 and by the persons who had led it, he mentioned P. Alexeyev, I. N. Mishkin, S. N. Kalturin, and I. I. Shelyabov. This was bound to plunge Alina Lenin into a cauldron of controversy. Kalturin and Shelyabov had been well known terrorists, and indeed Shelyabov had been hanged for his part in assassinating Alexander II. 
Olina Lenin's defense was that he approved of their methods of internal party organization, not their ideology. He argued the priority of recruiting professional revolutionaries, who he suggested should become the main constituents or element of the organizational revolutionaries. As full-time activists, they would have the experience and understanding to make it more difficult for the police to track them down. William Lenin insisted that the organization of workers, meaning chiefly the trade unions, should be kept separate from the organization of revolutionaries, which constituted the party. Trade unions ought to be as broad and inclusive as possible, even in absolutist Russia, and workers in general should be encouraged to join them and participate in the economic struggle. The party should have predominantly political tasks. It had to be narrow in membership and clandestine, and it required a stable leadership. It needed a clear specialization of functions among activists. It would have to forswear any absolute commitment to democratic internal arrangements, like elections. Otherwise, the danger of police intervention would be insuperable. William Lenin declared that command and control had to be accepted as principles of operation. There might occasionally be abuses of authority in the party, but the author affirmed that they could easily be rectified since revolutionaries had traditionally applied effective moral pressure on offending comrades to reform their ways. Above all, this section emphasizes the priority of creating an empire-wide network. Localism was wasteful and risky. Centralism would work. The Russian focus of what is to be done was reaffirmed in the fifth section. Its theme was the usefulness of a central party newspaper, and the argument again turned on the insufficiencies of a journalism which served only specific localities. William Lenin conceded that Iskra had imperfections. He knew that it covered the labor movement in some towns only haphazardly, and that his reportage on the countryside was woefully inadequate. But this, he proposed, could only constitute an argument in favor of greater coordination of the party's work. Iskra would welcome all activists who would help to improve its reports. He called for the setting up of a newspaper which had the entire party's support, and he argued that such a newspaper would be able to play a guiding role at the center of the party it could be a collective organizer. The geographical and temporal particularity of what is to be done was emphasized. Its five sections were devoid of detailed stipulations on the organization of Marxist parties elsewhere. Nevertheless, certain general assumptions pervaded the book. Olyanov Levin repeatedly stressed the need for leadership. Great political changes, he maintained, do not come about only because large social groups will them. Leaders have to supply the decisions and the direction. Nor is leadership an innate gift. Training and experience are vital, and any effective party, or by implication any substantial modern organization, has to husband its personnel as a vital resource. Stability of cadres, too, was necessary. William of Lenin, writing on the German Social Democratic Party, noted that its central leaders stayed in post years after year. This, in his view, was wholly commendable. It was the authoritative aspect of decision-taking among the Germans, more than their democratic structure, that evoked his admiration. He ridiculed as utopian those who would put trust in primitive democracy. The work of Sidney and Beatrice Webb on English trade unions, he suggested, had proved the impracticability of letting each and every member participate in all debates on policy. 
authority had to be developed through a firm and experienced core of proven leaders. Mass participation in its extreme theoretical form was inoperable. To be sure, the party's leaders would be imprudent if they lost contact with the feelings of their rank and file members, or of the mass of the working class. William of Lenin denied that he was advocating the creation of conspiratorial elite. Broad social, social discontent was a prerequisite of revolution, yet the book repeatedly asserted that a determined role in the preparation of mass opinion would have to be played by serious thinkers and the popularizers of their thought. By implication, leaders with correct doctrine could tip the balance of history.